Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. In 1971, only 11 women in New Zealand had taken seats as members of Parliament. Women were not entitled to matrimonial property, there was no state help for women leaving a violent partner, and no childcare available for those that worked. That year, young feminists Sue Kedgley and Nahuya Te Awakotuku led a procession complete with coffin into Auckland's Albert Park to protest the lack of progress in women's rights. Fifty years on, much has been achieved, but full equality remains elusive, and the movement continues to navigate its way through challenges from within and without. Kedgley and Awakotuku take the stage to mark the publication of the former's new memoir, 50 Years of Feminist, and to reflect on the journey so far and the ways forward. The session is chaired by Alison Moore and it's supported by Platinum Bold patron Teresa Gatting. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora koutou, kia ora koutou, kia ora koutou katoa, ko Alison Moore tōku ingoa. Um, really lovely to see you here this evening, and I can't think of anything I'd rather do on a Friday night than talk about feminism, right? Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, we have exactly the right people uh, to do that with us tonight. Um, I'll introduce them in just a moment, but I want to tell you first that we will be uh, having a small amount of time for questions at the end. Um, so I run a fairly tight ship, so make sure yours is a question and not a statement. Uh, and in the meantime, mm-hmm, and in the meantime, uh, we've got some very lively conversation about to happen up here on stage. Um, so uh, without further ado, may I introduce my esteemed guests, just to build the tension a little bit. Can I tell you a secret? Uh, these two, Wahine Toa, have not seen each other in almost 40 years until last Friday, right? True. Isn't that extraordinary? So this is a real um, celebration and um, a wonderful get-together for you. Uh, I can't wait to hear the conversation. Um, so let us meet them. You probably know exactly who they are. Ngahuia Te Awe Kotuku was the first Māori wahine toa to gain a PhD in this country. She was also, uh uh-huh. She was the first Māori woman to make emeritus professor in Aotearoa. She is Ruanuku of the Māori Centre for Research, uh, Ngāpai o Te Maramatanga. She is a member of her tribal paipai, a writer, a dreamer, and always a fighter. Welcome, Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. And, of course, the reason you've come out on a Friday evening, um, Sue Kedgley gave me a very short introduction. I'm going to embellish it a bit and say that she was founder of the feminism movement in Aotearoa, or certainly one of them, which is absolutely true. Um, former Green MP and, of course, author. Uh, I read your book when it was delivered to me and it rained down on me like solace from heaven, I have to say. Uh, I inhaled it in two sittings and it really is something that I recommend if you haven't read it. Um, please do, please grab a copy. Will you be signing copies afterwards? Yeah. Yes, fantastic. So you'll have a chance to talk to Sue. Uh, directly afterwards, but I also think that particularly even just for the first section, it ought to be taught in schools. Um, be because yeah. one of the, if I can make one observation from my, you know, from, on my own part, um, there is a lot in the book that fills in the gaps for younger feminists mm-hmm. who probably mm-hmm. haven't had an opportunity to really take a deep dive into the work of women such as yourselves, uh, and I think that would be enormously, enormously useful. Well, that really was my motivation to uh, write the book because I kept coming across these magnificent, even young, you know, feminists of today. And when I talk about women's liberation, I sort of, oh, has that got something to do with equal pay? 
And then I started, I was so intrigued, so I asked, do you know anything about women's liberation? And most of them didn't, so that really was my main motivation and for doing it. And yet it. we all stand on your shoulders, essentially, you and... All you the know, women the of the second wave women's. of feminism, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with the picture that you might have seen up, I hope it was up on the screen, um, before we walked onto stage. Um, and it's also on the cover of your book. I can't reach it, Sue. Would you mind just holding that up? So this is, if you've not seen the book, this is a picture of Sue at a protest in Auckland in 1971. And Ngahuia is in the picture as well, but just your arm. But she's in here. <laughs> just her elbow. She's here. She's in here. Uh, there's some great there's some images in the book as well, I have to say. Some is. wonderful images. Um, this protest is a is a good place to start, I think. It was September 19, 1971. Can you explain to me why you were all carrying a coffin on that day? Right, well, it was um, Suffrage Day, 1971, and our Auckland University Women's Liberation Group, we were sort of sitting around saying, oh, Suffrage Day is coming up. We must, uh, you know, what should we do to celebrate it? And then it, so someone said, well, Actually, there's really nothing to celebrate. I mean, we, we actually, women have progressed very little uh, since getting the vote. And of course, uh, Maori women's position had steadily deteriorated. So we thought, well, instead of celebrating, we'll declare a day of mourning to uh, protest or, or the, for the lack of, or to mourn, in fact, the lack of progress uh, for New Zealand women since get, gaining the vote. And really, and, and so that's, that's what that was all about, and you have to put it into context that even though, I mean, it was truly magnificent that we were the first nation in the world to give women the vote, but the vote didn't fundamentally change the situation for uh, women in New Zealand or social attitudes. So in 1971, I think that was about 78 years later, it was still utterly a man's world, and um, we all grew up um, believing that it was men's men's role to run the world and women's role was to run the home and to act like a sort of servant class to the male population. And I mean, there were two women in parliament, men held every single position of power and responsibility and it was considered completely normal. So anyway, we staged our protest, we all got dressed up in black with carrying a, uh, I think lily. a lily, a white lily, and we held this coffin aloft with a drum roll, and we marched from Auckland University to, um, through Albert Park and into Queen Victoria's statue, where we had a ceremony. And for the first time, about a thousand people turned up, and the media, who'd completely ignored uh, or sneered at women's liberation until that point, they turned up, including the, the quite famous program Gallery, um, and Darren Shanahan interviewed um, us, and I think it was probably one of the first major television interviews about women's liberation. And Nahuia, in the course of the interview, declared to a shocked nation that she was a sapphic woman. <laughs> at, at which point I'll come into the conversation of Tuatahi me mihahu ki a kōrua, ki a tātou I, I'll never forget that day because I thought, shall I use the L word? <laughs> and I'd published an article in Crackham a few weeks earlier called Lesbianism, the Elegance of Unfettered Love, which got me into enormous trouble with my lecturers in the English department <laughs> and um, resulted in a lot of grief for me. However, at that particular moment, um, I thought, no, I still couldn't say the L word, but I said, sapphic women have been in the vanguard of the movement for women's rights since the beginning of time. And um, during that particular period, though, in the second wave and in the women's liberation groups of both Hearn Bay and um, Women for Equality and uh, the university. Um, there were only two of us. My girlfriend and me. <laughs> and Katerina. <laughs> no, she hadn't come up no. then. She was, in, she was with a you, dude. You said in the... 
You said in the TVNZ interview that there are about, there are about four of us in Auckland. And I could, say, I could almost hear everybody going, you know, which one? Who are the other the two? Plant. <laughs> but that, that was within a particular uh, context, because at the same time, of course, um, there were dozens, scores, um, the Karangahapi Road Girls Club, the KG Club, um, lots of cousins of mine who were stomping about in big boots and um, plus fours. And um, so it was a different, I guess, social environment, though, which we moved through and through which we expressed our particular um, vision. And it was. And of course, speaking as a Māori woman at that time, um, there was one other Māori, and of course that was Donna Awatere, who sang How Long Must We Wait? A beautiful song that she had composed. To the composed. statue of Queen Victoria. <laughs> On that day. That's right. It did, I just want to stay with this for a moment. It did create, even though you hadn't said the L word, it created uh, an amount of shock that we would find almost oh, yeah. comical these yeah. days. Uh, and yet, the, you know, even the young woman who uh, prepared the news piece for TVNZ, um, even she couldn't help editorialising a bit on how shocking it was to hear, not even the L word, but that word sapphic. Mm. Uh, well, you, we you know, actually, let me ask you this. Do you want an apology from those people? Yeah, I think, it, I think that um, some of the media have started apologising um, very, you know, very appropriately for their treatment of Māori, so mm -hmm. maybe they could also apologise for their treatment of women over the years. But there's no treaty. No, perhaps there should be. Um, they, they should apologise for the way they treated mm. you afterwards as well, oh, yeah. with all the, you know, palaver about what a good-looking representative of... Uh, the feminist, the well, nascent feminist it, it's movement. Sort of a, I think it sort of irritated them because basically the assumption was that all, fem all women's liberationists, the term sort of gradually mm. morphed into feminist and women's, but we all called ourselves women's liberationists mm. very proudly. Mm. And um, they were, but they said, oh, the, they were sort of man-hating lesbians with chips on their shoulder. And that was basically the, um, the way the media dealt to us. And so I didn't fit that stereotype. But it's interesting how, you know, the word lesbian was just such a taboo. But even, even to be a single woman, if you couldn't, I mean, the whole goal in our lives was to um, get out, lure ourselves, uh, lure a man to marry us, and um, and look, so we could spend the rest of our lives living vicariously through him. And if you couldn't find such a man, you were called a spinster <laughs> who was on the shelf. On the shelf. And that was terrible. Or in absolutely the terrible. <laughs> on the shelf. Or on in the, the closet. Oh, and you, in your case, mm. on, in the in closet. The mm. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, you brought, there, there are milestones in the book. One of the next milestones is the, uh, the bringing of Germaine Greer to New Zealand. And there's several things that we can talk about, several hilarious things, actually, that we can talk about um, with that. Um, just to introduce the concept of bringing her here, why, why her? Why did you decide to... She needed to come to New Zealand. Well, she'd just published her book, The Female Eunuch, which had gone to become an international bestseller, and she was this megastar. And I learned that she was going to Australia for three months. So I wrote to her and said, you know, could you pop across the Tasman for a few days? And she said, well, she would if everything, her airfares and everything was paid. So we went to the Sunday Herald. She wrote a column for them and so asked if, if they would sponsor her visit. And, and uh, away she, and in she came. Um, we were all, of course, terrified of her because she was this... <laughs> She was like, unlike any woman in New Zealand, this giant sort of, the, all the headlines said, the saucy feminist who likes sleeping with men. That's why she was so popular. The, the media loved that. And not just men. And anyway, she sort of strode onto New Zealand, um, had huge, massive meetings all, you know, in Auckland and Wellington and whatever. And, but shortly after she arrived, she learned or someone told her that Tim Shadbolt 
had been in jail for a month for saying the word bullshit in a public place. So she immediately started to lace all of her talks with bullshit <coughs> and fuck. <coughs> and bullshit and fuck. <laughs> and fuck. and yes. so then she immediately got summons to appear in the magistrate's court in Auckland. And that really was Monty Python because... <laughs> so uh, there were about three... She, oh, she insisted on doing her own defence. And... But I, and I was called, to, I was to be a witness, and I had to crawl up a fire escape at the back because the whole place was so um, filled with, there were 300 students um, outside chanting bullshit and fuck. So you couldn't... <laughs> you could and you not, can't arrest them all, right? And you couldn't... Oh, oh, I still remember this vision of this black Mariah had arrested a whole lot of them, and that all worked out. The whole lot had moved into one side of the black mirror, so it was sort of toppled over, <laughs> and all these policemen. Anyway, it was completely comic, and um, so yeah. So, so you she, had to climb up a fire escape to go and give your evidence. To give my evidence, absolutely. And it, so anyway, you couldn't hear the the judge virtually couldn't hear anything for the pandemonium outside, and she was duly um, convicted, refused to pay her fine, and she said, "This New Zealand is the laughing stock of the world." But it did drown out the feminist message, unfortunately. Mm. It's, it, is, it is unfortunate when the message gets hijacked like that, although it does make a great story years yeah. later. Um, another, if we can just back up the bus to when she arrived at the airport. Um, so you were there with her, kind of escorting her through arrivals, Welcoming right? Welcoming her, yes. Where were you, can I ask? Um, and what were you dressed in? Well... By this point, I'd kind of crossed town and uh, joined Women for Equality, um, which was a mixed um, group of um, men and women, um, absolutely extraordinary visionaries like um, Joss Jessen, Bruce Jessen, Fern Mercier, Bronwyn Banks. And um, we were really quite appalled by what we considered to be the elitist and exclusionary aspect of um, the Greer visit, in that everything was kind of regulated and managed, and all the ruffians and the undesirables and the sapphics <laughs> were left out. And um, so we thought, right, we'll confront her at the airport and get her to notice us. And for some reason, there was um, commentary that she was actually a witch or that she was some type of yes. Rosalie Norton That's been going on for about character. a thousand years, hasn't it? That, yeah. That, that, that and so what we did is um, deck ourselves out in um, great big Halloween witches' hats and white, 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 white faces, because, of course, witches are always white, <laughs> and um, lots of black makeup around our eyes, and, um, and we screamed and pranced and shrieked and howled. And um, at that time, Auckland Airport was really teeny. Tiny. But it was yeah. really small. And so VIPs arriving had an immediate impact with the public, the undesirables and the ruffians. And we all swarmed up the stairs. And you all came out of the double doors and mm -hmm. the shock. Like, because here we all were, this mad rabble, screaming chants and yowling and screeching. And um, then Greer turned to Sue and said, who is that woman? <laughs> <laughs> and it was me. <laughs> because I was screaming the loudest. And I had all this mop of long, black, wavy hair everywhere. And um, it went well with the big witch's hat. And um, she invited me to dinner. Ah, you must have made it quite the impression then. It was the most extraordinary evening, which I will not go into. However, oh, I don't I've know. heard about it. Why not? Because it... She, she's saving that for her. For book. my memory. Oh, right. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I'll just say that um, I was rescued by Caterina Maria Teresa de Nave, who at that point was my partner. And um, she was, yes, 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 that's a hint, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, she was, she was covered in um, um, cameras and this ginormous, almost as big as that table, reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape. And we got the details 
of Greer having sex at the same time with Marsha Hunt and Jimi Hendrix. Um, which um, Catherine Katerina promptly transcribed along with a lot of other stuff, other disclosures, and sent off to be published in Crackham. <laughs> Who refused to publish it. And did they? Who refused to publish it. So there, there are two and a half pages and um, about 40 column inches of text is white space. And then there's wow. a comment about the politics of her book, The Female Eunuch, and then about what I think of New Zealand and something about a swim in Devonport or oh, something well, really weird. The, the problem was that, that because the Herald had agreed, the Sunday Herald, yeah. to, to sponsor her, they wanted to control everything yeah. and take everyone here and rush about, and they were not at all happy. In fact, I think they probably regretted uh, that um, they'd agreed to sponsor her. The whole thing got completely out of their control. And I might say, Germaine, after she'd arrived, it was quite obvious. She thought, oh, what have I done you know, well, coming to New Zealand? Also, she was also she was, really distracted. She, yes, Tell us why so, she was so, so distracted. Mike Willisey, um, some of you might have heard of him. He was a um, quite a well-known current affairs uh, interviewer in Australia, married. And uh, she'd been having this passionate affair with Mike Willisey. And so the entire time that I was with her, she was ringing up or trying to ring or Mike Willisey. And I thought, this is supremely ironic. Here she is telling us all mm. not to be these helpless females, you know, trying to, uh, you know, lure ourselves with men. And she was doing precisely mm. that. So it was all very ironic. Did that give you the sense of, because you often shouldn't meet your heroes, should you? Oh. Well, Talk to me about, were you... Were you a tiny bit disappointed? Um, well, I was, and some actually were quite dis critical, like Sh Sharon Cedarman was despaired because she didn't seem to be very interested in the feminist mm. movement and women's liberation, except for now, who we are, I would add. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, so, so some felt very disappointed about this, but I thought, look, she is just the sensational role model of this defiant, independent woman, mm. such as we had never seen in New Zealand mm. before. So I forgave her a lot. And I did, over the years, you know, keep in contact with her and uh, did a documentary about her. Now, she has become rather, shall we just say, contrarian and rather out of step uh, with some of her views. We won't mention words like books like rape and so forth, mm. which have come out. But nevertheless, in the day, she was this... I mean, she was unlike any other woman that I think we'd um, come across in New Zealand, certainly to that time. Mm, and her, her physicality, her mm. eloquence, mm. her intellectual rigour and dynamism, but also her physicality, like she was six foot two. Yeah. Mm. And um, had this incredible kind of Grecian profile that she'd swing mm. about. And, um, and these huge hands. In your direction. Great. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and she had these great big hands, which were really they fascinating. They were, that's and, um, and, and breasts that she, oh, and she never wore underwear. Do you remember ah! that? Yes, absolutely. Okay. She wouldn't wear underwear. She considered it an insult to her womanhood to wear underwear. And, so and that was yeah. I mean, she, she, she was sort of the epitome of, she, mm. of the sexual revolution. Yeah. She told me, okay. when I interviewed her later, she decided, which it was, of course, a complete con. That's what she said. And, and she'd completely gone off men and all the mm. sexuality. But at mm. this time, she was in her heyday, and, um, and she was, um, everyone was sort of fair game. <laughs> so this, se this session has <laughs> taken an unexpectedly... Gossipy too. Very gossipy. Yes. Hasn't it? Which I'm loving. I'm loving. But um, let's get back to, back to the them. feminist movement in Aotearoa. <laughs> Hope you're not too disappointed. Um, so, I mean, these were early days and you were mm. building a movement. Uh, it did expand quite rapidly in the 1970s. Tell us a bit about um, who joined and, and how you encouraged people to join the movement. Well, it, it just sort of, I think it just mushroomed um, mm. all over New Zealand. And um, 
it started as these little radical groups, you know, Women for Equality, our little, you know, Auckland University Women's Liberation, etc. And all over there was you know, the Dunedin Women's Collective, the Victoria University. Mm. But then, so a, a group of us set up. We decided that we needed to start to move from our little radical groups into a slightly more mainstream organisation. So we set up this thing called the National Organisation for Women. Uh, that was in 1972. And it, it, actually, after Germain Greer's visit, it must be said that even though it, it became this sort of uh, charade, it did introduce thousands of women to uh, feminism. 8,000 copies of her book were sold almost immediately. And there was a huge upsurge of interest in feminism and now, are now spread all over New Zealand. And yeah, for, for um, really throughout the 70s, then we had those United Women's Conventions. One of our group, uh, Tony Church, organized the first United Women's Convention. Sharon Seedeman organized the um, women's health movement. Nahuya uh, was one of the key movers in the lesbian feminist and Maori feminism. So the, the movement sort of uh, took off in the 70s, and then sadly, it, towards the end of the 70s, it started to splinter yeah, and fracture. Yeah, so for a while you all moved on perhaps separate but parallel tracks, right? Yep. Uh, am I right, Nahuya? And then it started I, to fall apart, yes? I think that um, there were particular issues and sensibilities um, that were manifesting in towards the end of 71, early 1972. And um, certainly at the very, in the very first few weeks of 72, um, we saw some dynamic um, action from Ngā Tamatoa, the Māori uh, Liberation Group, Land Rights and Language Group, but we also saw the appearance of some really out there powerful lesbian women. And by then, of course, Katerina had come out, and Katerina de Nave, and um, Sharon Alston emerged as a really powerful figure and started um, the Gay Feminist Collective. And that kind of morphed into other things. At the same time, in um, Wellington and in Christchurch, there were lesbian groups meeting. And there was a kind of unconscious um, sapphic sisterhood of us that kept in continual touch with each other. And um, even though this is long before communication was easy, we wrote letters. We wrote mm. letters. I mean, we wrote letters. <laughs> <laughs> and um, stuff was coming in from overseas as well, mm. like the ladder and the daughters of Belitis and stuff like that. Um, in the Māori context, though, um, with Tamatoa and with um, the Māori Organisation on Human Rights, um, there were also really strong, women-oriented, powerful, wahine toa involved in those, but they didn't see the relevance of feminism. Mm. And that, that for me was, you know, quite challenging because I, um, I actually think that the basic oppression in the world, on the planet, is patriarchy. As indeed Absolutely. it is. Whatever your ethnicity mm. or your language, that's what gets you, that's what controls us. Mm. And um, all, of, all of us. Yeah. Men and women. I mean, look at what's going on in Palestine. Mm. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> I, so, I at the same should... time, there was kind of a global collapse. Collap perhaps oh, collapse yeah, is not the right word. But a, a sense that people just had decided that they'd moved past fem feminism and perhaps didn't need it. How well, you towards mean? the end of the 70s, it all became, you know, quite fractured and there was quite yeah. a lot of intolerance and there was this 1979 PIHA conference, Women's Liberation Conference, which fortunately I wasn't at. I was and, there. Yeah, you could tell us about it. But anyway, um, it all started getting a bit fractured and, um, you know, like lesbian separatists were sort of saying, well, we're the true feminists because 
you heterosexual women are too close to your oppressors, which is hard to argue against. <laughs> well, it was um, that whole notion of sleeping with the, the enemy. enemy. Yeah. We live on more, what do they we say? But then we, as a Māori woman of mixed heritage, mm. that puts me in a position when I look at my great-grandmothers. Mm. You know, so we, we have to... Is it, there was an expression constantly. that we were living on, women were living on more intimate terms with our oppressors than any other oppressed group in history, and it's uh, hard to argue with that. Anyway, they're all sort of fractured. There was, of course, a backlash led by Feminists for Life and Connie Perdue, one time uh, feminist herself, and um, the, the whole thing sort of started sort of petering out mm. in the 80s, and then of course with Rogenomics. Actually, one of the interesting things is what you mentioned globalism, that like the, the women's movement was spreading, spreading around the world, and the same fracturing and um, infighting that was happening in New Zealand was also happening in yeah. America, in yeah. England, and elsewhere. Yeah. And also the other thing, when I went off to um, New York and got involved in the, just in the um, women's secretariat and organizing women's conferences at the UN, and the, exactly those same issues with indigenous women, that was where I really mm -hmm. learnt about, you know, some of the women were saying, well, we can't, you know, we, we're going to have to wait until we've eliminated um, colonialism, racism, imperialism, before we can deal with feminism and equality. And there were other women saying, no, no, we actually have to deal with it now. So, it's, so it was very, very similar to what you were saying about, um, and others were saying patriarchy is the fundamental oppression. So that's become, that's another global debate. And you were trying to do things differently to the patriarchy, and that was one of the reasons why it started to fracture, and all this is incredibly complex, of course, but you deliberately set out to have no single person or small group of people leading the movement. That Did that contribute? You know, it was truly egalitarian, right? Well, the idea is we didn't want to replicate men's hierarchy. Yeah. We wanted to be organic and leaderless and, co and communal how did that and work consensus. <laughs> and, and organic and yeah. consensual. And, um, and yet, because of the way the world was then and continues to be, of course, um, particular looks attracted media attention. Mm. And I, I'm amazed at the amount of material on record of Sue and me. Mm. It's like we weren't the only two there, mm. but we were the most photographed. Even though we didn't have everything to say, there were other voices in there. Absolutely. And for very anti-feminist reasons. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, must uh, have been oh, incredibly yeah. frustrating. They did, yes. I, and I mean, there was, as I say in my book, there was definite resentment because the media decided that myself and Nahuia and a few others were the leaders of the mm. movement. And this was, of course, a heresy in a movement which was to have no leaders. Mm. So um, I, I went off to New York and um, the United Nations, and Nahuia and I were agreeing the other day that I was probably very lucky that I was out of New Zealand at the time of all these intense sort yeah. of factionalism, we agreed that I probably would have been eviscerated oh, definitely. If, I'd been, if I'd been here. <laughs> so for, fortunately, I was living in New York and far away from it. But yeah. anyway, the upshot was that everyone decided it was post-feminism. Feminism, Feminism oh, yeah. had had its day. It was irrelevant. We'd won our, you know, won the battles, um, was passe, and um, we're now moving on to other things. And it was as if feminism died yeah. in the 90s and early, mm. Uh, mm. early 20th century. Um, an upsurge of interest again around 2010, that's something that you've personally identified. What was driving that, do you think? Um, well, shall I, that's where I was going to read yes, my little absolutely. quote here. It's a, Sue has kindly agreed to give us this a one short quote. The upsurge, this is after, this is it. so it really was about 2010 that we started to see, and with the internet, you know, the internet became one of the... Um, ways in which women connected all around the world. And it was, so I point out the upsurge of interest in feminism after decades of disinterest was not surprising. All social movements wax and wane and go through cycles of expansion and contraction. After an initial intense burst of activism and success, there's often a period of inactivity, stagnation and a decline as the movement begins to run out of steam. 
Even so, it had looked for a while as if the second wave of feminism was destined to become a footnote in history, mm. a movement that fled briefly, then disappeared, much like the first wave of feminism in the late 19th century. So it was exciting to see a resurgence of feminist activism happening in New Zealand and elsewhere. I was delighted too with being spearheaded by a new generation of young women who weren't blindly following in our footsteps or copying what had gone before. They were reinventing feminism for themselves and becoming active in quite a different way from the women's liberation movement of the 70s. These new feminists were women who had been brought up in the so-called post-feminist world, who'd been assured as they were growing up that they were the equal of men, only to discover that they were not. Many of them were disillusioned to discover that despite all the talk of equality and having it all, not a lot had changed over the last several decades. They were still being sexually harassed at work, at university and at school, and they were now also subject to torrents of online abuse. Mm. That, so that yes, was, yeah, <laughs> sort of. that I, I'm a little <laughs> bit older than the women that you're discussing, but that was actually absolutely my experience. I grew up in a in a household in Australia of three girls and mum and dad, and we were told we could do anything. And the implicit um, subtext of that was that the old the the way it used to be wouldn't get in our way, and it was incredibly disappointing to, found, to find that those structures were still in place. Mm. I remember at 24 being horrified by my experience at Channel 9 in Melbourne and the sexual harassment there. Um, let's talk about the Me Too movement then. What, I mean, it's one, sexual violence and, and sexual harassment is one part of women's experiences, and, and only one part, and yet, and yet, it throws a shadow over everything, I guess. It does, and um, I, I think the uh, Me Too movement is probably one of the most important grassroots campaigns of the last half century. And when I think about feminism, I sort of like to think of this huge network of women um, supporting each other, cheering each other on, empowering each other, and that's literally what the Me Too movement was. You know, all over the world, these women were standing up, speaking out, saying we're not going to put up with this, um, you know, being sexually harassed and exploited and, and raped and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think it's, it, it, of course, it touched such a nerve for the obvious reason that so many women in every single nation and culture in the world have been sexually harassed and sexually, I, I can't think of anywhere in the world that it's not a common experience. And so I really salute every single woman who has stood up, particularly who, the women who started the uh, Me Too movement, those that went through the courts. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, and to me, just as important as changes in laws or policies is changes in attitudes and consciousness. And I think the Me Too movement has been profound in changing the whole debate. So, because for decades, uh, in fact, some women have even written to me in the last few days about how women felt so, they kept, we kept it secret to ourselves, felt ashamed about it. And so this is turning the whole, instead of feeling ashamed, women can f talk about it and say we're not going to put up with it anymore. And so I think it's been, you know, a fantastic uh, movement in feminism. Now, who are I, sorry, I'm not going to interrupt you. you I'll, I'll come in after you. Well, <clears throat> I was about to say that um, the Me Too movement has also been criticised by women of colour and um, women of mixed heritage and um, women whose very lives are dependent on relationships within a patriarchal structure. And um, any interruption or challenge of that structure immediately is seen as a neo-colonial attack. And so we come in to a whole intersectionality of grief, of oppression, of historical trauma, and of um, the reality that there's so much else going on in the lives of these women 
um, racism, poverty, um, a whole bunch of stuff, that to complain about that seems really selfish and not what you do. But um, yet it's so and sexual, yes, it's, yeah. being raped and sexually assaulted has such a devastating effect on women oh, yeah, of does. whatever colour and race. Mm. But I think in, um, in some parts of even Aotearoa and the Pacific, often women will prioritise other issues. Mm. They will. We will. Does it, does it we also do. make it harder for um, Indigenous women and women of colour to speak up? Because we've seen, you know, the Me Too movement began with Hollywood actresses, yes. you know, and, and even in this country, um, some, a lot of the, the excitement, the spotlight, um, tends to ramp up when you're reporting on Parliament or mm. fancy law firms. Mm. Not so much when we've investigated uh, fast food outlets and workplaces, you know, where um, more disadvantaged women and people work. There's, there's, a, there's an unfairness there as well. Well, there's, a, there's a, um, a sense of valuing the currency of location, of social location. And um, I think that it's far more glamorous and far-reaching and makes much more money and financial sense to consider the Hollywood actresses or the MPs than to think about some poor woman struggling at, at a fast food chain or in um, a big box store with some vile and disgusting supervisor or boss. Actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. We should also um, acknowledge your role in, in New Zealand oh, yeah. in, the, um, in uh, taking this debate forward and addressing the, the Me Too movement because, and, and what's happening here in New Zealand. Because without reporters and without people like you discussing it, it probably it could easily sink without trace. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, the only point I would make there is that uh, it is... I'm, I'm constantly looking for the stories of women of colour and they are hard to come by and I'm trying to understand why that is. And of course, when we do publish them, which I have mm -hmm. in the past, they don't quite get the buzz, you as, know, as, as the, the, the public buzz stuff. That, that, you know, the law firms or, or mm. you know, the law house camps, or the beehive things. gets. So, um, but, it, but those stories are needed. They're, they're much needed. Um, of course, we need to protect the people who are telling them as well. But thank you for that. Um, lessons learned from 50 years of feminism, I've got written down here, Sue. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, well, um, yes, I've, I've written a chapter sort of that you, in there. But, um, I mean, I think one of the things is that you, you actually need a movement. You know, you, it, it does need... Um, you know, a collective movement, just, pe it, I mean, women, and one of the things I wanted to do in this book, because it was also the realization, my God, it's 50 years, half a century that I've been involved in feminism, so I want to give some sort of historical perspective. And when I looked, I've done a chapter about um, up against the patriarchy, looking, and I suddenly realized that actually we make, you know, a great deal about getting the suffrage, but arguably, just as important was the year 1884, because it was only in 1884 that married women had a legal identity. So until 1884, that was an amendment to the um, Div Marriage Act or Divorce Marriage Act, a woman's legal personality disappeared. She became the property of her husband, and she had no rights of any kind to her children, to a prop, to anything. So in 1884, for the first time, uh, women were actually allowed to have a legal personality, though, of course, they were still, you know, like Mrs. John Smith, you know, they, they were, uh, and took on the husband's name, and we've got that lingering sort of concept of belonging to a man. But so it's really, you know, six, we've had 6,000 years of patriarchy, and so, you know, we are really, women are really just coming mm -hmm. into their power 
um, in these last, uh, you know, the last half century. But we didn't realize when we set out um, in 1971 with women's, we just thought, oh, well, you just expose the inequality and things will quickly mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. We didn't realize we were up against entrenched patriarchal attitudes. Um, and this, I mean, it was just assumed that men were superior to women and that they were naturally dominant over women. And these sort of lingering attitudes have proven very, very difficult um, to, uh, to, to change. But I would like to think that, um, that we could learn from some of our mistakes. And, and, and one of the things is that um, we can't do it on our own. I mean, if, if women change, as we have, I think in the last 50 years, women have changed quite radically. We've surged into the workforce. We've, you know, we've thought about, we've reinvented our roles and whatever. Um, but men, by and large, have stood still, and they're not. Uh, most men aren't living lives which are terribly different, different from their uh, fathers and grandfathers. So, I've, you know, if one sex changes and the other doesn't, then they sort of fall out of sync. And so I think one of the lessons is that it, men have to change. Men have to start, we have to have some shared parenting. You know, we've, all these years later, we're still doing most, most of us are doing two jobs, you know, at home and in the workforce. And, um, you know, men have to speak up. I mean, the whole business of sexual violence, why is it still uh, 50 years later that sexual violence seems to be as rampant as it was mm. in 1971? Mm. Excellent question. Mm. Um, you mentioned childcare, and I want to ask you quickly, both of you, what do you see as still holding women, women back at this point? Mm -hmm. um, I'd actually like to just step back for a couple of moments sure. and reflect on um, the university system and how, when I began, there were no women professors. Mm. Zero, none, mm. at the University of Auckland. Um, we ended up with Associate Professor Annie Shepherd, a medievalist in the English department. She was the first one, but she was Associate, you know, for, for a really, really long time in the academy, which is where much of the Me Too activity mm. went on. Mm. Um, it was very much a, an environment of male power. I think that that's shifted a little, not a lot, but a little, in that we have lots of women professors. Um, we have Māori women professors, and a lot of us, um, we are starting to shift the, um, the environment there. And part of that has been, I think, um, the, um, the influence and the excitement of women's studies as a discipline. Mm. And that's kind of overlooked as well. People don't talk about that. And yet Aotearoa New Zealand has got one of the longest ever um, enduring women's studies associations and a journal that is global. And we, um, we, we have made some small shifts, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. And there are new hazards. So yeah, I'm thinking about... Um, you know, the, the internet, um, th you know, revenge porn. I mean, yeah. we'd never heard of that in our day, yeah. and now there's legislation around the whole issue, revenge porn, cyberbullying, and I think the fact that a lot of, for a lot of young men, it seems their sex education is pornography, we're watching pornography, and that, of course, um, is, you know, sexual aggression, uh, showing women, you know, uh, having a role to passive of being passive, pleasing men. So I think there's a whole lot of hazards. And I've got a... It's, um, it's, it's another way that capitalism has stepped in to make our lives more miserable, right? Well, I mean, there's because obviously a lot of advantages to having the internet, but it's a pornography hazard. pornography is yeah, yeah. So, su such a massive way uh, of making money. But it, it occurred to me, uh, somewhere out there is my um, step-granddaughter, Ruby, and um, she was going off to a concert in Raglan, one of these sort of... And she... And I, I was sort of... You know, but we'll think, oh, you're going to, going to be all right, you know, sort of one of these rock and roll concerts. Don't worry, she says, we've got, we've got the three of us, we're all planned. 
and um, we've worked out all these ways we're going to be with each other, and we've got this app, and it sh- we're going to show, and if one's in trouble, we can push this app, you know. And I'm thinking, all this effort yeah. that Ruby's having to go to, to, to protect herself from going to a concert, and what and her male peers are probably thinking about, where do they buy the beer? And you know, that's so exactly what they're thinking. So this my, is, my son was at the same concert, so yeah. that's what he was thinking. So, <laughs> the, so for these young women, I mean, in a, so they've got all these opportunities and possibilities, but yet this sexual predatory and, and the cyberbullying, mm-hmm. you know, is, is probably worse than in our day. And um, they did a survey at Otago University. They published it last year, and it said of uh, of the women in Otago University, it said that. 15% had been raped, and 28% had been sexually abused or harassed. And I thought, it's no better than it was in our no. day. So that's very much unfinished business. Mm, very good point. Uh, do we, I'm just going to ask you very quickly to finish, because do, we do want some questions, do we? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Very quickly, what can, we talked earlier about the peaks and troughs of the movement. Um, is there anything, and I would ask you to be quick, is there anything that you can think of that would pre- prevent us falling into another trough? Well, I think we do, one thing we do want to prevent uh, ourselves of getting back into that sort of intolerance and infighting that occurred, um, you know, back in the late 70s and early 80s. And I think that, you know, for me, it's really important that we um, are tolerant and accept that women can locate themselves wherever they wish to on the feminist spectrum. And that when, you know, that we're not, don't get back into that judgmental feminism. And, you know, there's room for everyone. There's room for lesbian feminists, for Maori feminists, for, um, you know, women on boards, for global women. I mean, wherever you want to locate yourselves, there's no membership card for feminism, no committee, you know, deciding who can be a feminist. So I think that that, uh, to retain that um, solidarity, and that, which is what I felt so much with the Me Too movement of women supporting each other, you know, cheering each other on, empowering ourselves. To me, that's uh, so critical to moving it forward. And, of course, supporting the young women of today. It is so Mm. fantastic for women like me who looked for a while that feminism was just disappearing. Mm. And now to see these young women Mm. following in our footsteps, picking up the torch, fantastic. I, yeah. My daughter's generation is your daughter, yeah. Um, I'd just like to finish with a a phrase that we used to often repeat to each other all those years ago, and went, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, but the hand that cradles the rock is where the power is. Ooh, I like that. And um, we, you know, we're living in, as Uh, Sue has said, a time of real exposure, but it's also a time of opportunity. It's like your your mokopuna had apps on her phone to take care of herself. Mm. So even though it was a technology that is threatening her Mm. through internet abuse, it is also a technology Mm. that is protecting her. And um, so it's, it's cyclical, it's, um, it's dazzling. I, I like to think of an exclusionary um, world being just so over, like so completely done, and that we're approaching a time now when we can see each other, not just as comrades in arms, but as sisters. Like when I was approached to do this, I thought, well, She's not my friend, but we, <laughs> but we were comrades in arms. Mm. We were Very five decades so. ago, and we continue that now. And um, mm. I like to think that there will be more and more and more of it. We are yeah. delighted that this has brought you back together. It's, but it's we, a I also thing. just would, would make the point that basically men have ruled the world for. 6,000 or 100,000, whatever many thousands of years. And I do think it's our turn now. And yes. it is, it is, it is, um, 
it is time that we yeah, time. You know, actually uh, started um, making decisions, being in the decision-making roles, mm. and, um, you know, it really is. Men, let's face it, the world is in a... Uh, mm, yes. The men's rule has resulted in a pretty... Um, devastating world, and it's time to see what women can do to, um, to to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. Quite right. Should we have some questions? <laughs> Is, who's going to step up to the microphone first? So I think you have to you have to approach the microphone, please, and we'll have a little bit of a cue going. So, yes, ma'am. So this question's for you. Um, do you think the Ministry for Women has achieved anything for women? That's a, that's a tricky question. I think it has. Yes, I do. Um, and, I mean, I know that when it was started, you know, we had incredibly high hopes uh, for the women's ministry. But even at the time that it was started, some women was felt were a bit suspicious of it, that it was a, a way of sort of... Um, distracting us from our um, movement. Um, look, I think it's waxed and waned like everything. And, you know, back in the day, there was Mary O'Regan, who was the very first chief executive. She set up this, um, these autonomous uh, Maori women's uh, secretariat, a sort of bicultural organization. And that was got rid of. I mean, but she was, so she was way ahead of her time. She, and it was very exciting under Mary O'Regan in those early years. And then with Rogernomics, it sort of almost disappeared without trace. Um, and they, and under National, they retrenched it, et cetera. But I still think that, yes, it's doing valuable work. And yes, there's a desperate need. And in fact, for example, they have um, really pushed for half of 50% of state sector boards are now um, women, mm. and that has very much been pushed, for example, by the Women's Ministry. So yes, we certainly do need it. Um, it'll never live up to all of our expectations uh, because it's within this huge bureaucracy. But all in all, I'd say, you know, yes, it's, it has a valuable role. Mm, whereas I see it as a construct and not a particularly um, supportive one of Māori women and Pacifica women. However, we do have our own entities, the Māori Women's Welfare League mm. and the much older Women's Health League. And currently we're engaged in the Manawahine claim at the Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal. Which is another very exciting development, yeah. These, the Manawahine claim that's been, and the hearings taking place mm. around New Zealand. No. Fantastic. Mm. Kia ora. Yes. Oh. Oh. oh, sorry. Kia ora. Sorry, madam, you weren't there just before. <laughs> Was, were you? Maybe I can't see. Would you mind waiting two seconds? Yes. No. Kia ora. <laughs> Hi, good evening. Sandy. Um, oh, hello. Oh, that's on. Yeah, Sandy. Hello, Sue. Hello, Nahuya. Hi, Sandy. Um, I just wondered if either of you had any insights you care to share on the diminution and eradication of the word woman that is happening at the bureaucracy at the moment, where we have completely lost it. Uh, well, I feel incredibly proud to be a woman and um, I would feel very oppressed if I wasn't able to call myself a woman. And I know that, I mean, I completely um, support uh, trans, the trans movement, but where I draw the line is to, the, the, some idea that I have to, we have to call ourselves persons with vulvas or um, chest feeders. Now, I haven't seen anyone saying that men aren't allowed to call themselves men. They have to call themselves persons with penises. It seems to be only women that we're... And, I mean, for, for 6,000 years, we, our voices have been silenced. So I do not want uh, to be not able to, uh, to, or to have our voices silenced and not to be able to call ourselves women again. Okay. What about you? No, Nahuya? great answer. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, so, can I just check, before we come to you, have we just got two mics? Hello. I, oh. I've been back here for a while, you probably can't see me because of I the lights. <laughs> I cannot see you, but I can hear you now, so go ahead. Can, can you hear okay? Yeah. All right. 
thank you. Um, so if I can remember my question. You mentioned getting men involved in the struggle. And so from a practical standpoint, I want to know how do we convince our young men, especially, that feminism still matters when so many of the messages they're getting on social media say sexual assault is overblown, the gender pay gap is overblown, and there's all these idiots on YouTube who are feeding them this lie. So how do we get our young men involved in this? That is an extraordinarily good question. And um, particularly, and I outline this um, in my book, that there's a whole what they call the manosphere, manosphere in, um, on the web of men who see feminism as an incredible threat. They think that um, women's equality is going to erode you know, their, uh, their, their uh, privileges, I suppose you could put it. But anyway, so there's this whole male backlash taking place very much on the, um, on the internet. And you've you probably all now heard of the Proud Boys because of some nameless idiot in America. And um, they began their life as a, um, they're an anti-feminist, they see feminism as a cancer, and their object in life is to get, make women subordinate again. So that, and they're very much um, one of these groups, and then there's the incels and a whole raft on the, on the internet. And they are saying things freely and without censure on the internet that you couldn't possibly say in traditional Media, For example, they're talking about how to rape women, how you can get away with it 98% of the time. Uncensored, and they are targeting young men in, particular, in a whole host of ways. So it is, a, it is a very good question, a very serious question. Fortunately, most young men, um, including, I, can, I think I can say my son, um, are much more... Um, you know, they, they, they've just sort of grown up with a much more equality, and um, so a lot of them are much more, uh, I think, um, open-minded and progressive. But there is this movement on the internet which is very, very worrying, and I think it's time that we, you know, we're, there's a whole movement to um, try to shut down terrorist threats on the internet. I think it's time that we shut down this extreme... Uh, aggression towards women mm, uh, on the internet agree. and revenge porn. I'd point out so yeah, that, that our sons, uh, you know, will walk into the house and, and have us saying, now just sit down, I just want to talk to you for a moment about something. And they've had that pretty much every day of their lives, right? Yeah, yeah, so, that's right. Um, you know, and I wish more parents would step in and um, give their sons the right kind of guidance about pornography and, you know, and, and sexual health and all of those areas that we tend to kind of shy away from a little bit. Anyway, yes, ma'am. Um, so firstly, mahalo nui loa. Thank you so much for all that you've done. Um, just that's the first thing I want to say. I did have a question, though, because the reoccurring concept of 6,000 years of patriarchy is is new to my consciousness. Mm -hmm. So there's, to, there's a movement of rematriation. So this, this question might be more appropriate for Nahuya. Mm. I'm wondering in terms of from a Te Ao Māori perspective, would you say it's been 6,000 years of patriarchy or would you say that patriarchy is, is a f part of colonization that actually we come from a matrilineal society. I'm from the Hawaiian Islands, mm -hmm. and um, my understanding is, is the need for rematriation that actually we come from a matrilineal society. So, so the mention of 6,000 years of patriarchy three times triggered something for me, and I just really needed to ask that question. So if, if you could just talk a little bit about that, Nahuya, from a Te Ao Māori perspective, mm -hmm. especially in light of the Manawahine hearings, <clears throat> That would be amazing. Mahalo. Oh. Um, we in the Pacific world know and celebrate divergent, variant, fabulous, non-binary sexualities, genders, and ways of pleasure 
throughout the ocean. However, we are, I think, speaking of my own world, ambilineal. Um, we take descent lines from both male and female. And I do question, and I do actually support perhaps the assertion that some of the patriarchal ideology came into my world mm. with the arrival of Judeo-Christian missionaries. And certainly, um, one brilliant example is the gendering of all the deities, except one, the Earth Mother, as men. So that, that for me, is, is an issue. But um, I still, I like to think that we were originally, as some Māori writers like Ani Mikaida claim, a very harmonious um, gender environment, um, there were still biologically determined roles, there was still biological essentialism within the way that um, a community was run, and that um, I, um, I can't make a general comment on how my people lived at that time but I do know how we're living now. And the ease with, with which the Abrahamic traditions took over so much mm. of our belief system, mm. like the absolute convenience of it, does make me question what was going on before they got here. So I'm not going to say... Um, no, we were matrilineal, because I know we weren't, from my own understanding of Moteatea, Waiatakroa, ancient chant forms, and my own genealogies. Mm. They were balanced. But um, I'm, I'm Certainly not... Certainly colonisation yeah, has made it worse. Yeah, that's it has. For sure. mm. But I, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, but one for another koho seminar, wānanga, not, not here. <laughs> Kia ora. Thank you so much. Um, I'm getting a thank you, um, I'm getting them wind up, and I will mm. be in trouble if we don't finish it there. Can, oh, nice. Young trouble. lady, can I ask you to be first in line to talk to Sue when they whisk her out to the writers' table? Because I would like to give you an opportunity to meet her and, and ask and, her your question. And we love person. seeing young women like that. Would so be fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, Ngamihi Nui, thank you so much. Um, please, everybody, Sue Kedgley and Ngahuia Te Awakoti. Great session. All these years later, survived. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.